What you shooting at, buddy? Nature. We're trying to record a live show outdoors, and I've got all the extras from Snow White filling up our microphones with their woodland jibber-jabber. You obsess so much about the audio quality. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about you. Our fans have come to expect a crisp, triumphant wall of sound. I strive so hard to create in honor of my personal idol, Phil Spector, and these birds are making a mockery of his untarnished legacy. They're just chirping. Not anymore, they're not. And you thought this was a good idea to do in front of the audience? It asserts dominance. Hello, everybody. Hey, keep it down. Calm down. They're doing what we want them to do. If they're just going to sit there being vocally supportive, well, then maybe they should just leave. (laughs) I don't believe this. I just said, if you're just going to sit there not listening to me, why am I talking to you? (laughs) Disperse the crowd. Daniel. Get them out of here. Thanks for coming, everybody. That's been our show. If you could please exit immediately and silently, Daniel would certainly appreciate it. And please, if you could leave your shoes behind, cobblestones, it's very loud. You understand. Well, we're all alone now and all the animals are dead. Let's record our live show. Mm, The sound is just right. Hello and welcome to our live episode. Well, let's come to this. Huh? What's that? Nothing. Here, drink this tea I've had in my bag for four years that Poison Control doesn't know about. Ooh, is it oolong? Yes. I don't like oolong. It's not oolong. Oh, okay. Ooh, it's lukewarm. Are you starting? Yeah. Orange groves, traffic, parking lots. Audio perfection. Wait, what was that? Do my ears deceive me? Every time I talk it, wait, it's me. I'm compromising the structure of my wall of sound. And for that, I deserve death. Arms, take your last embrace. And lips, oh, you the doors of breath. Seal with a righteous kiss a dateless bargain to engrossing death. Come, bitter conduct, come, unsavory guide. Thou desperate pilot, now at once run on the dashing rocks thy seasick weary bark. I'm going to kiss Greg now. You were supposed to kill yourself with sabuku like we wrote. No, I'm going to kiss you on the lips and die from the poison that's still on there from when I poisoned you, just like Romeo did in Romeo and Juliet, which is what I was just quoting. Now pucker up, stupid. No, sabuku! Is this heaven? Well, it must be because I still have my mixer with me. Why, yes it is! Hey, hey, I'm trying to get the levels here. Could we kill the harps? Michael, Gabriel, come on. I'm not going to be doling out mana during your podcast. Oh, you goddamn jabroni. What did I say? Fire brimstone? Where the hell am I? Nailed it. Hey, I'm Satan. You're giving me feedback. Oh, that's just the kind of rudeness we like around here. You're gonna fit right in. Make yourself at home, eh? Remember? Have fun. Alright, sounds good. Sounds good. Wait, what's that crackling? It's the burning flesh of we, the Sodomites, doomed forever in the eternal flames of hell and the swampy waters of the river Styx. Well, I see a clear solution to this problem. Hey, what happened? I was picking up some crackling in the mixer, so... You... God... Damn 
jabroni. What'd I do? Okay. Some room tone. I can make this work. Yeah, yeah, this is good. I don't know where I am, but this will work. Oh, no. I know that sound. Those are unbaptized babies. I'm in limbo. Hey, hey, it's okay, guys. Everyone calm down. Can someone put on Finding Dory? Oh, not now. I'm coming for you, Lucifer, you lousy jabroni. You put you in a headlock, God. You lousy jabroni. It's Christian Ragnarok. I'm all that's left. But it's so quiet. This is perfect. Levels? Just right? Okay. Well, welcome to LA. Oh, crap. God jacked my headphones. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hey, pals. It's been... It hasn't been a while. It feels like it's been a while. Behind the scenes, it's been a while, but yeah. for them, they'll never even know Smooth we were gone. Well, you weren't gone. I was gone. I mean, I was gone emotionally. Like, I... <laughs> if this podcast was a child, I kind of left for a bit. I was like, mm, I'm going to get some cigarettes. Is, this podcast is going to grow up with some severe attachment issues. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> hi, um, everybody. Oh, hi. Oh, uh, hi. Greg here? Daniel here. Huh. That's not right. That's not how you hey. podcast. Wait. Is this a freaky podcast? <laughs> we bumped into each other too fast. We're here to introduce another live episode, mm -hmm. our second live episode that we ever did. Yeah, this one we did at the Andres Pico Adobe in Mission Hills, as you probably know from many of the flyers that we made you look at. <laughs> yep. This went really well. We had a really great time. We did it in the courtyard, which was, it was very nice. <laughs> oh, boy, did we do it in the courtyard. <laughs> and then we did it upstairs. And Shaggy caught me. It Mr. wasn't Willoughby. It, it wasn't us. <laughs> not that Shaggy. We're talking about two different Shaggies here. We're, you know what? We're not meshing. This I feel meshing. like we're meshing. I feel like this. Is, I feel like the the confusion and the conflict is what makes this podcast great. It's the connections we don't make. That make this podcast. <laughs> it's like bad jazz. <laughs> another kind. <laughs> take it, take it, take it, take it. Anyway, so yeah, this was a live episode that we did about uh, different weird things in the valley. Mm -hmm. We won't tell you anymore. We want to thank again the Adobe, the Andres Pico Adobe, for having us. Yeah, uh, Jason Vega, Maria Westenauer, thank you for having us. Thank you for setting uh, it all up. Setting it all up. We'll do some plugs before we get into it. Leave us a review on iTunes. Right. If you have the podcast app, just open it up. It helps us out. It creates more of a community. More yeah. people will listen. It'll be fun. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter mm -hmm. at LA Meekly. Uh, LAMeekly.tumblr.com. That's our main website. See yeah. the archive and all that. LA underscore Meekly at Insta on Instagram. We post every day. Lice us on Facebook. Lice us on Lice yeah. <laughs> Follow us on Lifebook, a community for people with head itches. We're big on there because yeah. we are so dirty. Yeah. We're two pig pens. We were on podcasts. You were on... You Do What podcast with Cindy Arvina, a friend of the show. I came out and on And of a... me. The podcast is your friend. A friend of the show, business associate of me, Cindy Arvina. You were also on that show. I was it's also on that show. It's a show where we talk about sort of strange habits we have. Mm -hmm. Greg's a freak. Mine isn't that weird. You're a kinker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We talk about our kinks and... Uh, uh, you know, we get it. We get jiggy with it, quite frankly. <laughs> if I'm allowed to be honest on this podcast, we get uh, jiggy. You were on Bleak and Review. I was in an episode with, of Bleak and Review with Kevin Anderson and Matt Brousseau. Other friends of the podcast? Yeah. Uh, and, and business associates Also and business associates. 
was also on an episode of Meet Your Moms, which is Becca Greenberg's podcast about TV moms. I was talking about Marjorie Adams. Business associate. Another business associate of ours. <laughs> I'll be on another podcast soon, but I'll promote it when it comes out. Oh, God. You... Yeah, well, okay. I'm living yeah, a life. You've been gone, okay? I've, I've had to go on other podcasts. because yeah, well, mom... Emotionally, I was still here. <laughs> <laughs> I may have left the country, but my heart stays in Los Angeles. When you were gone, I set up all the equipment. And I just yelled at myself. And I thought, yeah, this is what it feels like. <laughs> we don't yell at each other, Craig. <laughs> don't ever say that again. <laughs> all right. So, yeah. Uh, that's all of our plugs. Mm -hmm. uh, here's our live episode. We had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, listen, bye. Does anyone here know who we are? <laughs> cool. Greg's mom and three other people. <laughs> Perfect. My mom's a bigger fan of you than me, though. <laughs> that's fine with me. How many... Uh, uh, see, that was my next question. Who here is computer illiterate? <laughs> Does anyone here listen to podcasts? A lot of, a lot of podcasts. Again, Greg's mom and three other people. <laughs> well, what we, we do a monthly podcast on Los Angeles history called LA Meekly. We talk about different... What have we talked about? We've talked about bank robberies before. We've talked about famous hot dogs of town. we talked about uh, native foods, the native people of Los Angeles talked about uh, Boyle Heights in one of our last episodes yeah. and the cultural differences in Boyle Heights. We usually take a subject and we try to break it down between the two of us and then try to find like the stories that are really interesting inside of those. Yeah, and this uh, tonight we're going to be talking about specifically in the valley uh, oddities of the valley, strange things, strange folk tales, haunted weird stories, things. Yeah. weird wild things. <laughs> we're trying to figure out why there's so many weird things in the valley. Like what what is it? Why is it drawn to the valley? Yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. I think it's because a lot of industry people wanted to move to the suburbs, so they came over the hill to this area. Uh, a lot of them started families. They weren't necessarily movie stars or directors. They just worked in the industry, and they just had these talents, and they just started putting stuff out. Not necessarily for everybody, but, you know. I think it's the nuclear fallout. <laughs> <laughs> nuclear fallout and heat and wind. The Santa Ana winds hitting them, plus the nuclear stuff carried yeah. around. Yeah, I think that'll. I mean, that's it's that's reason enough to make a place called Monkey Island, which we're <laughs> going to be talking about tonight. Uh, should we get right into it? Yeah, let's get into it. I'm going to start tonight. I'm going to be, talk, be talking about something called Malady Land. Is no anyone here know what Malady Land is? All right, here we go. <laughs> In August of 1977, the King of Rock and Roll, Elvis, Pre Elvis Aaron Presley, leaves the building. He left behind a beautiful ex-wife, a lovely daughter, and a small faction of men pretending to be him uh, for money. That's not fair. Some people did it for money. Other people did it just because it made them feel better. Elvis impersonators go as far back as when Elvis was alive to comment on the movement subculture, raking in sometimes. Some of these guys got like six figures for pretending to be Elvis, and that's like a really lucrative thing. There's really famous Elvis impersonators out there. There was uh, Alan Mayer. There was John Hare. There was Danny McKay. Not Danny Kay. Danny McKay. <laughs> There's a guy named Orion who's weird. He had a really weird career, and he his mythos lends to Elvis's in that he was the one that started the story about Elvis faking his death and then continuing on. The Bubba Hotep story, if you were. <laughs> it's a good way to start a career. Yeah. So there's a lot of fake Elvis impersonators. There's like thousands worldwide. One Elvis impersonator in particular named Danny Unowich, I think that's how you say it, W-U-N-A-W-I-C-H. I have no idea how to say that. Does anybody hear Unowich? We'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> He went by the name Danny Yu because he got it too. He decided to pay uh, Elvis Presley and the Presley's legendary Memphis home known as Graceland a great homage. So Danny Yu, just to give you a backstory, was raised in Louisiana where he lived near Presley's longtime guitarist James Burton. Danny had been impersonating the King since the early 70s, starting at the Love Me Tender age of 13. <laughs> like that. Uh, and slowly through the years, has been working up 
his way up the Elvis impersonator ladder. Danny had a great desire to pay uh, tribute to Elvis and Graceland, and that stemmed from a promise that he made to Elvis. Uh, Danny met the real Elvis in 1973. Upon uh, meeting him, he told uh, Elvis... Okay, there's not somebody standing behind me. Is there someone standing behind me right now? Uh, he told the real Elvis that... Elvis? I invited Elvis to be here tonight. Where was I? Danny, you promised the real Elvis that one day I'm going to have a home just like you. So what did he do? In the early 80s, he sought a property to build a special kind of monument, and he found that at the corner of Parthenia and Zelza, if anyone's familiar with that. Elvis very far from Memphis. Part of town. <laughs> 17912 Parthenia, like I said, on the corner of Zelza, would be the home to Malady Land, the West Coast twin of Graceland. A perfectly replicated Graceland for the San Fernando Valley, which would allow people in Los Angeles who've never been to Memphis to see Graceland, they give them an idea of what it's like. Uh, a perfectly sculpted idea of what it's like because it's a direct replica of Graceland. Then he wanted it on a big boulevard, so he picked Parthenia. It's more long than big, really. And the reason he wanted that is because Graceland was on a big boulevard. Elvis Presley Boulevard. I don't know what it was called before that. Parthenia. <laughs> also Parthenia. For this project, Danny Yu would spend $1.5 million to perfectly replicate Graceland. Money he earned impersonating Elvis Presley. So it's just like a cycle. It just builds back into the Elvis lore. Danny flew the contractor, uh, Ricky Davidson, to Memphis so he can get an idea of what Graceland looked like and capture all the details perfectly. It took four years to construct uh, Malady Land, but even as it was being built, when it was just a wooden frame, it was getting all this attention. LA Times came out, the media came out, a lot of neighbors were, they had comments on it. Some passerbys were saying that the idea was interesting, but he picked a weird place to build it. Yeah. One neighbor reportedly said, so Elvis is in the neighborhood, who cares? I just don't want wild parties. <laughs> then they should be a little disappointed that Elvis <laughs> is in the neighborhood, which is his new catchphrase. <laughs> He never really had a lot of parties there. What he really wanted to do, obviously, other than living there, was to open this as a sort of Elvis monument two days out of the year. One would be on the death day, uh, or Elvis's death day, August 16th, and the other one would be on January 8th, which is Elvis's birthday. Two days of the year it would be open for people. Opening day was on August 16th, of the 14th anniversary of Elvis's passing in 1991. Okay, so let's go over Malady Land together. Let's see if I can get this picture going. First off, anyone who knows what Graceland is like, picture that, but over there. <laughs> That's what Mallory Land was like. For anyone else who doesn't know what Graceland looks like, there's a large white wrought iron gate that was decorated with ornamental guitars and musical notes and kind of around it like an open book. Uh, the only people that have those gates is me and him, is what Danny Yu said about it. Uh, the house was 8,000 square feet. It was a two-story Georgian-style house that had features. It had these Corinthian uh, columns at the entrance with a Hollywood star, star right there. It said I Danny Yu. Is that like, inside the gates or outside the Inside gates? the gates at the front door, okay. outside the door, where, where the doormat would go. Okay. <laughs> is that where doormat carpet? Go? Yeah. Uh, it had three bedrooms, a ballroom with a huge chandelier, a trophy room which houses a collection of animal heads and a full-size stuffed lion in attack mode, a pond. Instead of a golf course like Graceland had, he had a small putting green. He had a fountain, a statue of Elvis. He had plastic-covered furniture, just like Graceland. <laughs> he, had a, uh, he had a jacuzzi, a huge white marble king-sized bathroom with uh, gold-plated sinks. Let's get some pictures going. He had Italian toilets shaped like crouching lions. What? That, okay. That sounds frightening. I want to know what part of the toilet the lion's mouth was. The, 
the flush. The fl- <laughs> yeah, it, it, anything else is kind of weird. Sideways. There was a heart-shaped swimming pool, a small recording studio for Danny and his band, a mini museum full of Elvis memorabilia, including books, photos, records, clothing. Uh, he had some scarves that Elvis owned. He had some rings that Elvis owned, all valued about $10,000. But Graceland was built over 13 acres. Maldiland is one acre. <laughs> but Danny kept insisting that it was bigger, but I think what he meant was the house was bigger, the property wasn't bigger. I think Malady Land, the house was bigger than Graceland. That's what I was trying to figure out, but maybe, I think... Maybe it's like the Beatles are bigger than Jesus sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. We're bigger That's, than Graceland. Was, I'm bigger than Graceland. He was taking a stab Not at it, yeah. literally. <laughs> he had bodyguards in red jackets uh, following him around, led by a guy named Tony Wood. They had patches that said TCB, which is Elvis's model for taking security. Care taking care of business. Yeah. You do that, really? Yeah, I'm an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> I'm doing it at the end of the show. A really Maybe. old Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> the reason he had security, because people would treat him like the real Elvis and claw his clothing and try to get him naked. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're exaggerating. <laughs> On the actual opening day, however, no one was in, allowed inside of Malady Land because of safety concerns. I don't think, I think there's parts of it that weren't finished. But the gap between August and January is so long that he's like, just come. It's August, just get here. But opening day, they still had a thing that you can hang out outside, you can look at the exterior, they had a raffle. George Barris, who designed a lot of cars, he designed the original Batmobile, the Flintstones car. He had designed a 1958 Cadillac Coupe de Ville, and they called it the Elvis Cadillac. Uh, it was inlaid with gold. That was on display. I don't know if he made it for Elvis or if he made it for Danny, you probably Elvis. They were passing out Elvis's favorite food to his fans, jelly donuts. At that point, he did the one thing Elvis would never do. He didn't wolf down all the donuts. <laughs> he looked at Elvis's demise like, nah, I think I figured it out. That's the only way you know it's an Elvis impersonator <laughs> and not the real. You put a bunch of donuts in front of him. <laughs> he won't eat them. And if they're still there in three minutes, that's <laughs> not, not Elvis. Not Elvis. Not Elvis. A Melody Land would serve not only as a great monument and its weird valley oddity, but it was also seen by locals as an Elvis museum. It was a place where you went and you worshipped Elvis. Uh, it was only open two days out of the year, like I mentioned, but it has the same schedule as any other museum in town, so why not? I've driven past that my whole life, and I always thought it was Richard Pryor's house. Oh, that's right. Because I knew Richard Pryor lived around there, and I never would have thought it was a, <laughs> How did I not know it was an Elvis impersonator's house? People would wait two hours sometimes to get the tour of it, and Danny you would emerge in full Elvis regalia, and people would lose their minds. They'd like, want to take pictures with them. They, they, they mean, there was... Sounded like a really great thing. What was great about it, in my opinion, was that it brought a lot of Elvis fans together because they would just hang out at these monuments of Elvis and just talk about the, when did you see Elvis? Why do you like Elvis? Why, what, why does Elvis mean to you? So it's a really cool thing, and it happened, like I said, over there. <laughs> Parthenia and Zelza. So that's 1991, and then something hits Northridge in 1994. The Earth. I don't remember. I was lying in my bed wetting myself because <laughs> I was so scared. <laughs> Mally Land took a decent but destructive hit from the 94 earthquake. The chandeliers in the ballroom came crashing down, marble and glass shattered, the walls were like cracked. like an Elvis music video, though. <laughs> they could have just used that. That's how Jailhouse Rock ends. Yeah. With an earthquake. With an earthquake, yeah. The Northridge earthquake. Uh, the LA Times used the headline, All Shook Up. <laughs> I'm only mad because I didn't get to it first. I'm like, All Shook Up! As another article put it, it went from Malady Land to Heartbreak Hotel in minutes. Uh, oh boy. No is. mercy. <laughs> <laughs> it would take two years and $50,000 worth of repairs for Danny to rebuild and reopen it in 1996. So sadly, it was closed in 1995 for Elvis' 60th birthday. <laughs> he seemed like there was going to be an attempt in 97 to get things going again because he was having like Elvis. He, oh, Elvis owned a chair. He bought the chair and he was having it refurbished and it got in the LA Times for some reason. So it seemed like he was like gaining traction again. But like the financial burden that the earthquake had laid on him. It, 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 it was too much for him to handle. So around 1997, 1998, he plans to sell it. And in the way he wants to sell it, it's some sort of Willy Wonka contest. Let me see if I got all the details right. He got five kids from all over the world. 
who loved Elvis. <laughs> okay, so apparently in May of 1998, they're selling these 4.99 long-distance phone cards bearing the likeness of Danny Yu, and apparently on, on his birthday, January 8th, uh, you get a phone call, I guess, saying that you won the house. The names were pulled at random. You didn't have to be like an honest little kid like Charlie Bucket. Like, you can be Mike TV and win Melody Land. <laughs> and he did. Yeah, and he did. Based on the sales price of the $1.5 million home, though, the annual property taxes would have been $19,000. I don't know if that's a lot or a little. I don't know money. And I cannot find out how the sweepstakes turned out. There's no articles on it. But in 2002, Danny sold Melody Land to a man whose last name was King. Uh, at which point they named the <laughs> it stayed untouched it fell into abandoned disrepair then it was once again sold in 2008 there's a lot of articles saying that Danny Yu's gonna buy it back but he never bought it back someone else bought it and they're not really doing anything with it all the Malady Land stuff is gone now except for the heart shaped pool was it in the front yard I walked by this morning and I could only see the, the, the bar to pull you out of the pool but I couldn't see the pool yeah that's why because I never know I never saw the words Melody Land in those uh, musical notes on yeah. the front gate that's why I assumed it was then Richard Pryor <laughs> Richard Pryor lives anywhere where it doesn't say Melody Land <laughs> Danny Unowich, the man who built Melody Land has laid very very low since that point my limited research skills could not dig up that much about his whereabouts but he has a wife and kid and a lot of properties in the valley so he's probably doing fine Melody Land is fondly remembered as a great valley oddity as I put it he as I put it like I'm so important he wasn't fake <laughs> The great Greg Gonzalez once said. <laughs> he wasn't fake Elvis living in a fake Graceland. He was a real Elvis impersonator living in a real Graceland impersonation. So Elvis is a state of mind is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I'm trying to get a, is that you feel Elvis more than it's a real We are Elvis. all Elvis. <laughs> okay, that's it for Melody Land. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> um, so uh, you want to pull up the first picture I have? for uh, the one I'm going to be talking about. Monkey Island. That That's a monkey. That honest little guy right there. Who's who's ever seen a monkey before? <laughs> so we've all heard of Monkey See, Monkey Do. But this story's all about Public See, Monkey Do things for a modest admission fee. That's right. I'm going to be talking about everyone's favorite Lost Valley attraction and least favorite Planet of the Apes sequel, Monkey Island. The not-so-fun one. A place whose name almost tells you everything you need to know already, but I'm going to tell you it again. I have a feeling it wasn't on an island. Elvis was an island, so this could be an island, too. <laughs> to understand the mindset necessary for a place named Monkey Island to be given the go-ahead, we have to go back to 1938 when a scientist brought 409 volunteers in the form of monkeys from India to an island off the coast of Puerto Rico, and he just let them all loose. <laughs> that was his science experiment. They, they would just have their run of the island, and that's what he was trying to record. What will monkeys do if they're free? <laughs> Be happy? I don't know. What that experiment was trying to prove, again, I have no idea, but I do know that the monkeys did eventually end up typing the entire works of Shakespeare. <laughs> if you look up this island on Google Maps, it's even labeled Monkey Island, so I'm not, I'm not lying. <laughs> Use your microphone. No one could hear that wonderful jab you just gave at me. I tried dropping the street view of the guy on Google Maps onto the island, but it quickly had feces thrown at it, and my computer got Ebola, so I couldn't look any further. So, of course, once word got to America of this monkey island, everybody wanted to visit it, but since it was the Depression, the only boats anyone could afford to take a trip on were to take them across a river to a bread line somewhere. No one was going on cruises. 
to Puerto Rico. Instead, it was up to showmen to bring Monkey Island onto land to the American people. Monkey Islands across the country start popping up and Los Angeles was not immune to this madness. They, more than one Monkey Island? They were Island. all over the country. There was confusion as to who exactly started Los Angeles's Monkey Island. It was either thought to be a guy named Adolf Weiss or Louis Weiss. Adolf Weiss was a classical musician. Louis Weiss was a movie producer who made movies named The White Gorilla, Terrors of the Jungle, two Tarzan movies, and just one year before Monkey Island opened, he made a movie called Jungle Menace, and then stopped making movies for the duration of the existence of Monkey Island. So the mystery persists of which of these two men might have created Monkey Island. Obsess isn't the right word. I don't know what I'm thinking of, though. Exploitative? In love. I don't know if that's it. Is it, is it any weirder than dressing up as Elvis? I guess not. To build an island for your to monkeys? To make money, yeah. <laughs> so there's Adolf, the mild-mannered classical musician, or Louis, the monkey-crazy, over-the-top producer with monkey to spare. So Adolf teamed up with a guy named Jack Cohn, and on November 3rd, 1938, a delivery from Kolkata, India, arrived in the port of Long Beach for them. The contents of this delivery, 500 wild chimpanzees and orangutans. <laughs> I don't know if they were driving the boat or I don't know how they were transported. This was the largest single collection of monkeys ever to arrive in America. Congratulations. We have the American flag out to celebrate that. I don't we know why the, you. Yeah, so I don't know why there's not a silly ho a silly holiday, a city holiday, but it would be silly celebrating this one. Now the the place where these monkeys would live was centered around what is now 3300 Coenga Boulevard and it occupied 3 acres which would stretch it into parts of what is now Universal Studios and if this former area doesn't now cover Curious George parking I <laughs> Most people did not do their research, and I'm going to be as upset as Frankenstein parking about that. Their habitat was designed by an art director from Hollywood named Paul Palmentola and an architect. Do you have a picture, the next picture that isn't a monkey? I only have money. <laughs> they all got replaced by monkey pictures. This is what the place looked like. It looks like an island. It was designed by this Hollywood art director and then an architect named George Sprague. It was 100 feet long. It was oval-shaped. It had a 40-foot-high plastic mountain, as you see there, right in the middle. Oh, that's plastic? Yeah. They didn't make that? <laughs> they, they didn't mold rock? They didn't have that come in from India also. That's part of the Himalayas. They're plastic. Uh, scattered around this island, there were palm trees, there were springs, waterfalls, and anything else an art director would assume a monkey would need to survive. <laughs> Give him a swing, what a, a swing and a hose. Surrounding this island, there was a 15 foot wide, you can kind of see, it's a 15 foot wide, three foot deep moat that the monkeys couldn't get across. They were like uh, the headless horsemen, they, they can't cross water. So they were safely contained on this island without having to worry about them escaping so they wouldn't have to be locked in in cages, giving people unobstructed, free range, organic, cage-free views of all of these monkeys. Backstage, the monkeys slept in a dormitory on steel shelves covered in straw that could hold, this building could hold a maximum capacity of 2,000 primates in what could only be described as a gorilla gulag. I don't, I don't know where they thought they were going to get so many monkeys. In December 1938, they flipped the switch to turn on their welcome sign, which, by the way, was the biggest animated neon sign west of Chicago. And it took three months to build just the sign. And Monkey Island, a paradise of primates, was ooh, 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 open. This was part independent zoo, part tourist attraction, part animal abuse, and it was an immediate hit. It was very popular, thanks 
not least of all to being right at the first stop in the valley of the Pacific Electric Red Cars. So oh, okay. you get there, you get off the train. Monkeys. What else? Monkeys. <laughs> monkeys. Right Here on. I am. <laughs> Take me to the monkeys. <laughs> get, get off at monkeys. <laughs> so it was 25 cents to get in, 10 cents for children, free if you denied evolution. Uh, <laughs> For an extra fee, you were given peanuts and vegetables to throw at the monkeys. Not a bad deal. Yeah, yeah. you could eat them. I mean, you could. You you could that could be your lunch. It was yeah. a depression. <laughs> we could be eating that too. You just stand across the moat and watch the monkeys run wild. Like that's what that's you just go and watch that. There's one picture. It's not like there. You, it's like a zoo where you kind of see a few monkeys if you go to the monkey cage. Like there were monkeys everywhere like it was like monkey times square like they were just swarming everywhere it was ridiculous there were a lot of them it wasn't with a few monkeys it was monkey island <laughs> they had performances every day by monkey islands famed high school troupe of chimpanzee movie stars what that means i will never know <laughs> did the monkeys make the movie and they became their own stars yeah they had P uh, peter nesmith or whatever his name is they also had regular performances there involving some more uh, evolved primates by the name of errol flynn john carradine andy divine who played frisbee in the hocus pocus and frisbee episode of the twilight zone if everyone if anyone knows that i'll repeat that for you Andy Devine, who played Frisbee in the Hocus Pocus oh, yeah? and Frisbee episode of The Twilight Zone. Was he, he was a monkey there? What? <laughs> Maybe I should go back a little further. <laughs> go ahead. He did performances there. So did Errol Flynn and John Carradine. They all knew this. Robin Hood? Yeah. Also, Phil Harris, who would be so inspired by this jungle environment that he would later go on to do the voice of Baloo in The Jungle Book. Yeah, he did, I assume he also did monkey voices. Why not? Bears are pretty much monkeys. I don't so, think that's true. Uh, read, read a textbook. <laughs> I think you'll find I'm right. Some of the monkeys themselves managed to swing some movie work for themselves, like Koi the chimpanzee who played the original Cheetah in the Tarzan movies, Jiggs the orangutan who was the star of Monkey Island. He was like the monkey to see. He was top monkey? Yeah. <laughs> he was, uh, what's the monkey from the Jungle Book? King Louie? King Louie. Thank, Thank you. you everybody who helped Thanks. with that. <laughs> Thanks Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> so this guy, he was so charismatic that they trusted him enough to walk around and greet visitors and not rip off their genitals when they weren't looking. He would just do whatever he wants. These most popular monkeys, like the movie star monkeys, they got special treatment and they got to lounge with tubs of ice and a hose and lemonade and watermelons while the rest of them had to huddle under the waterfalls to escape the heat. And they didn't even get any Oscars. <laughs> they didn't get to go to the Oscars, those ones. In March 1939, the monkeys got some new playthings when a goat in Burbank had quadruplets and in a sign of unity between the city of Burbank and the principality of Monkey Island, these goat babies were given to the monkeys to play with. What is that? This is how Planet of the Apes starts. <laughs> you give them transportation, they're going to take everything. <laughs> and then they had all these rifles that were born, and they gave... <laughs> the monkeys would ride the goats, and it was said that they found each other mutually amusing. Oh. But it wasn't all fun and goats on Monkey Island. <laughs> In 1940, while part of the moat was being drained for maintenance, a hundred monkeys saw their chance for freedom. <laughs> and they made a break for it and scattered into the valley. <laughs> Quick, the city valley to freedom! <laughs> the jurisdiction is no good there. They just ran away. Instead of hunting them down, Vice, who is the owner, 
instead of going after them, he just put a bunch of grapes everywhere, and one by one, the monkeys came filing back onto the island, oh. desperate for food. He oh. was so proud of him, he never lost a monkey in this or any situation, and stating as a true cult leader, they always return. <laughs> oh, if Planet of the Apes had ended like that, just like, <laughs> one grape, then fine. If only Charlton Heston had some grapes. <laughs> It's not clear when or why exactly Monkey Island closed. Attendance started to slip, one can only assume, because attendance stepped on one of the many banana peels that were around. What most likely happened... <laughs> I enjoyed that. Uh, what most likely happened was World War II hit, and suddenly people were too preoccupied with other islands in the Pacific to be interested in Monkey Island. All the monkeys got turned into bullets. That's what, exactly what I was going to say. Pre-World War II, Vice... This is, this is where it gets sad. Vice would give... 150 monkeys a month to local hospitals to test out serums, which is not very paradise of primates, I have to say. I don't blame them for running away. Yeah. On top of that, towards the end, it seemed like there weren't as many monkeys. I can't imagine where they went. And the conditions were getting kind of sad and cruel from what it seems. Then in 1944, Pacific Electric stopped running there and a freeway started being built. So it was around this time that it was closed for good. There's still pictures of it around like 1948, but it may not have been open then. So Monkey Island is no more, but if you're driving through the Coenga Pass late at night and you listen real hard, you just might hear the sound of traffic. <laughs> That's Monkey Island. Good night. Again. Next, I'm going to be talking about John N. and the Old Trapper Lodge in Sun Valley. Some people know about that? Fantastic. Great. <laughs> I'll put up a picture of John. Which uh, if one you can tell really? which one is a statue and which one is a person. <laughs> You're going to be doing pretty good. I bet a lot of... Is this of, a Pinocchio sort of story? Yeah, no, he was made of wood and then he became a real boy. <laughs> and he made more things of wood. <laughs> I bet a lot of people are sitting here thinking nothing ever good happened in Sun Valley. I'm not here to correct you, <laughs> but I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> but I'm going to weave a little yarn that might change your mind slightly. The story starts with a man named John Henry N. on the left, the guy with the, who can grow hair, actually. <laughs> He was born in the impossible year of 1897 in a temporary lodging town called Violet, which was near Gould City in Michigan. His ancestors were immigrants from Finland and Sweden, and he came to the United States, and they all worked as lumbermen or farmers or fishermen. John got married in 1921 to a woman named Mary, and around that time he had worked for the state of Michigan's field and game department as a game warden, which is not a boss of an arcade. He protected wildlife. He moved the family to Florida. They spent five years there trapping alligators and snakes. That was beginning, the beginning of one of his long traditions. He began writing and publishing mail courses of his series, How to Snare the Best Secrets of Trapper John. <laughs> and he would mail these out, these courses on how to trap animals. He had a series of about like six to 10 correspondence courses that he'd send off with cents, like smells, not pennies, trapping supplies. He'd do this into his later years. In 1940, Trapper John suffered a spinal inflammation and was forced to give up trapping. Partly due- oh, well, How did he go by his name then? What was he? What he was John before, then became Japper John. Inflammation John. That's it, yeah, spinal inflammation John. It didn't stick. Uh, partly due to the need for uh, new employment and partly from because of his health, they all moved to California. California climate at the time cured everybody now and makes everybody sick. Yeah, now it's the problem. Yeah. Trapper John moved the family to California, specifically to San Fernando Valley, and as one biography put it, they moved to Roscoe in the San Fernando Valley, which was, I didn't know this before, that's what they used to call Sun Valley. Oh. Yeah. We all learned one thing. <laughs> Once the ends got to Sun Valley... <laughs> that's it. 
That's, that's gotta the go. only thing we're going to learn uh, tonight. Once they got to Sun Valley, John built a house for him and his family. Then the need for housing in that area due to the growing aircraft industry, he started to build rental units. Both John and Mary began working in the aircraft factory to help pay for the construction. John worked for Lockheed, which was very lucrative, so they could move forward with that. From those rental units came a motel, which he opened in 1941, near what we now know as the Burbank Airport, on San Fernando Road and Arvia Road. And he called it the Old Trapper Lodge because he was an old trapper, and that's what he called himself. It was a Western-themed motel, and thus there was westerny directions like old weapons he had animal pouts and tools and other memorabilia he'd acquired over the years he saved nearly everything that his family ever used as lumbermen or fishermen and whatnot he had rusty farm tools snake skins furs rifles broken eyeglasses beads belt buckles his office was decorated but also just plain filled with all these old this paraphernalia like guns photo massages and um, photo massages photo massages those are my favorite photo montages <laughs> equipment <laughs> The flashback then was very powerful. It could <laughs> massage you when it went off. His motto was, waste not, want not. He also decided to have a sculpture on the property to attract customers, which we'll get to. He also, to fit the theme of his motel, he started to dress up in a westerny kind of style, which is this. He had a goatee with earrings. He dressed in like western garb. His whole persona was the old trapper character. And how much of it was real, how much was an aspect of his personality that he accentuated, his family could never remember. Like he would tell stories and never the same story the same way. He told folk tales. And where you, it was folk tales where you struggled to remember what was fact and what was fiction. He just made a lot of stuff up. You know, just, he just became that guy. Like we're doing. Yeah. Like we, yeah. I did, this page is blank. I'm just making this up. So there's a sculpture of the old trapper figure. There's an unconfirmed story that no one wants to be concrete about, but I read it enough times to just say that it happened. There we go again. Uh, he learned how to sculpt from a man named Claude Bell, who had been working on sculptures at Knott's Berry Farm, but he's truly known for building the giant dinosaurs at Cabazon. Oh, really? Yeah, which is Daniel's screensaver on his phone right now. <laughs> who wants to look at my phone? Claude Bell sculpted the first sculpture to portray Trapper John through the medium of concrete sculpture. It took three days, and according to Anne's legend, after watching Bell sculpt for three days, he figured out how to do it effectively. Like in Antonio Banderas in 13 Warrior, where he's just watching everyone speak the language he doesn't speak, and then he picks it up, it's like that. It's like how the monkeys learn to ride a goat. Exactly. They just picked it up. In 1951, being sort of self-taught, he went on building an array of statues and filled the property of the old Trapper Lodge with the statues of the Old West. Cowboys, cowgirls, Native Americans, miners, uh, people who mine for things, not children, uh, saloon gals. He created characters and scenes, and they're fantastic. There's Peg Leg Smith, a statue of a pioneer who's brawling with Big Bear, which is a statue of a Native American who's painted red like clay, which is problematic. Uh, Peg Leg Smith was a mountain man, a prospector, and a spinner of tall tales who lived in the 19th century. There's a statue scene titled Kidnapped, showing a Native American man kidnapping a white woman. There's a Mormon doing battle with a Native American. I don't think that's going to turn out well for the Mormon. A Mormon? Yeah. A miner and two gold rush gals relax on a, a rough wooden bench. There's lonesome George who sat surprised on a bench with a space for another person to sit beside him. <laughs> and surprise him? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey. Then there was the Boot Hill Cemetery. Uh, Boot Hill was a mock cemetery full of graves with tall tombstones. It was intended as a family memorial. He built the faces of the statues around life masks that he made of his family members. Life masks. This is another Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> Life masks scare the crap out of me. Yeah. They're so creepy. I the guess characters I'll smash the one I made of you. I was gonna give for your birthday. I don't want it. <laughs> the characters they portrayed were from his favorite folk songs and stories. Growing up, there's a tombstone epitaph described the alleged death of each of the characters. There's Blind Man Brown, who had an eight-foot frame except for his right arm, which was dug into the ground. Uh, his tombstone read, "Blind Man Brown, shake his hand, girl. He hasn't been dead that long." Uh, Ironfoot, Ironfoot Eva was a giantess, a poetess, singer, and a blacksmith 
killed on her wedding day by an unknown rifleman. Red Finn's grave tells that he choked on a broken cork floating in a jug of gin. He died in good spirits. <laughs> that's John's line, that's not mine. <laughs> well done, Greg. Well done. Well done. All of this was in front of his motel to attract customers, a fake graveyard. Each sculptor began with- You won't be put here, I swear. <laughs> you'll leave, I swear, you'll leave. We're not gonna bury you. Each sculptor began with strong wire armature he covered with cement, and then he usually added a final layer of brightly covered paint over it. He wished to pass on a sense of the old west that he lived through personally, through experiences and myth and tall tales, and continued this folk art sculpting for 30 years, becoming a local eccentric. He was interviewed on Channel 2's It Takes All Kinds in 1972, <laughs> In May of 1981, the old trapper finished working on the lodge and the Boo Hill Cemetery, which was apt time since he died later that year, breaking after breaking the hip. He was 84 years old, and the next year, uh, Mary Ann followed her husband out. In 1985, the entire site became California Historical Landmark, which is really great. Here's the thing about that. The Burbank Airport then bought it, and then the lodge had to move because it was torn down. But... 1988, the statues and other end sculptures were saved and have remained on the campus of Pierce College in Woodland Hills. Uh, let me put some pictures of some of the sculptures up before we continue. What do you guys want to see? Not that one. Not that one. <laughs> uh, not Kidnapped. This one. <laughs> do you have any that aren't very racist? No. <laughs> Ooh. This is Boot Hill Cemetery. An unknown fan of the old trapper made a phone call to the big wig on Pierce campus and persuaded them to harbor the statues and keep them safe in Cleveland Park, which is near the Animal Sciences Building, a part of campus that not a lot of people go to. Uh, there are no indications of a clear deal being made, so nobody knows who called them, who made the deal, and how they got there. They just, like, some, like there was a phone call, and now the, they all have the sculptures, <laughs> and they have to take care of them. Some mysterious persons will come to campus every few years and repaint the sculptures, usually sending a letter in advance saying, we're going to come paint the sculptures, but they don't know who they are, apparently. <laughs> this is our version of Zorro. <laughs> It's really easy to get to. It's right off the Soto, uh, what is it, El Rancho Drive. There's a red barn right there, and right behind the red barn, there's all these things. Oh, and I was there this morning taking pictures. The sprinklers, all the sprinklers were on me wherever <laughs> I went. There's something called dementia concretia, which I read about when I was doing research for this. It's a last-ditch effort in the twilight years of a person's life to cover whatever outdoor space they have with homemade art. It's a testament to a talent that they like, that they were never appreciated for, that they have burning inside of them. Watts Towers comes to mind when I think about that. Yeah. Someone who just wanted to fill the That was the a long twilight. He built that over like 40 years, though. Yeah, he knew what was coming. <laughs> it is created by a desperate feeling to leave a lasting mark, and I hope every single one of us gets a thing like this. <laughs> That's it. Let's see. Anything else before you start the next one? Yeah, do you have any more pictures that'll shock us? It's the same thing. <laughs> they just keep getting more and more offensive. This next one, uh, long before America was preoccupied with worrying about the Russians, believe it or not, there was a time in American history when America was preoccupied with worrying about the Russians. It happened once before. During the Cold War, a Soviet attack could come at any moment. It didn't. <laughs> But people didn't know it was called the Cold War back then, so people were very scared. So to protect ourselves, the Nike Project was started in 1954. Just do it. <laughs> Just protect us. Uh, it started in 1954 to detect and intercept any Russian bomber planes that might fly over the city and drop atomic kisses. You said atomic kisses. Laugh, 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 laugh. <laughs> laugh, 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 laugh. Uh, the way it worked, this Nike project, there were lookout towers equipped with radar and computer systems who would detect the planes and then alert nearby missile silos to then launch AJAC missiles at the bombers, destroying them and allowing everybody to get back to surfing in peace. 
Now, since LA was one of the closest major cities to Russia, we were at high risk, especially since there were so many aerospace facilities and military bases around, not to mention the huge population increase they were getting after the war that wasn't this war that we're now talking about. So as a result, LA was one of the most fortified cities in the country, with 16 missile defense sites known collectively as the Ring of Supersonic Steel. <laughs> yeah, that looks good on paper. Yeah, it's yeah. also the name of what Superman gave to Lois Lane when he proposed to her. The Valley had two of these Nike sites. One was site LA-88 on Oak Mountain in the hills above the 118 in Chatsworth. That opened in 1957 in a long line of scary things that have happened in the hills above Chatsworth. But the big one was LA-96C, which is that right there. That opened in 1956 on San Vicente Mountain above Encino. It was once a secret that it was up there, but thanks to the chatty Cathy that is time, we now know it's about a mile up a dirt road off Mulholland and Encino Hills Drive. The given address is near 17500 Mulholland Drive, but if Balboa went all the way up, you, you pretty much hit it. Uh, but it doesn't, so don't do that. Uh, the Pentagon deemed this spot here the highest in the city while still being inside the city, and from this site, they could detect planes up to 100 miles away. This was LA's last line of defense on the northern and western horizon, and I, for one, feel safe knowing that that responsibility was in the hands of an area best known because of a Pauly Shore movie. I can sleep tight tonight. This location, it had a watchtower that you see right there. It had water tanks, barracks for the soldiers stationed there, a generator, a cactus garden, and easy access to really good Israeli food and a Lemley theater. But, <laughs> uh, local jokes. <laughs> but this was just the eyes and the ears. The fist was a little further into the valley at Victory and Woodley at the entrance to Balboa Park where that Air National Guard site now is. That location is, it was called LA-96L and at any given time would have up to 35-ton Ajax missiles. Now you can bring up the missiles. They were ready to start World War III at the slightest sign of a Russian plane or an alien or just a big balloon that might have gotten loose. There they are, that's, they're sharp. They're very sharp. You gotta pop that balloon if it comes over. Uh, to alert the good citizens of the valley that Doomsday was here, there was a system of air raid sirens strategically located throughout the valley to reach everybody in the community. During World War II, there were some sirens to warn people of a Japanese attack, but the sirens were re-educated to now fear the Russians in the 50s, and Adjusted. more were added. <laughs> they were re-educated. More were added with a few dozen being in the valley, and there were some like 400 around throughout the entire city. They were tested on the last Friday of each month at 10 a.m. to the delight of dogs throughout the valley. <laughs> with all these defense systems in place to make sure no Russians came into the city, in 1959, the city of L.A. welcomed premier of the Soviet Union Nikita Khrushchev right into the city, into the missile-protected bosom of Los Angeles. Sucker. <laughs> they didn't expect that. Khrushchev had two demands while he was here. He wanted to meet John Wayne, and he wanted to go to Disneyland. So John Wayne took him to Disneyland. <laughs> it was not a fun time. He got to meet John Wayne. He got to meet John Wayne. No, that's good. People don't need to hear this. He got to meet John Wayne, but instead of Disneyland, he was taken to Granada Hills. <laughs> the second happiest place on earth. <laughs> he, they took him to Sophia Drive to get a taste of American suburbia. And he was not happy about that. <laughs>
Yeah, this is my problem with America. <laughs> Where's the Matterhorn? <laughs> Eventually, the arms race between Russia and the U.S. escalated to the point where each country had intercontinental ballistic missiles that flew so fast and so high that the Nike detection system would have been able to alert the city that an attack was coming just after everyone's ears were evaporated. <laughs> they were evaporated. That's what happened. Yeah. The Nike project ended in 1974, and the Encino and Chatsworth sites were decommissioned, but by then, they were already long obsolete. Like, they weren't doing anything. The Encino site, like most of the Nike stations, were turned into a park. It's now San Vicente Mountain Park. In 1995, by the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, after decades of being owned and neglected by the state, you can still visit the station and have picnics on that radio tower we saw before, but if you eat there, you are expected to defend democracy in case of an invasion. <laughs> There, there's a bunch of air raid sirens left also. I'm sure a lot of people have seen them. There's yeah. still like 200 left around the city and several, several of them are in the valley. They were used for the last time in 1985 when they realized that over 30% of them were broken and the valley had gotten so spread out that even if they did all work, only 42% of the people would hear them. Oh my God. And so the price of tearing them down wasn't worth it, so they just kept them up, giving thousands of false sense of security, <laughs> thinking that they'd have early warning in case of a nuclear attack. <laughs> The closest one here is at Strandwood in San Fernando, which is, it's like, we could, we'll all walk Everybody stand up, single yeah. file. <laughs> Everyone get on top of each other's shoulders. Uh, it's on the corner where the fire station is, like right near, right near the mission. So if that goes off tonight, I'm claiming the door prize. <laughs> and I'm leaving. Those are the missiles. Cool. Cool. Cool, cool man. man. Missiles are cool. Uh, my next one's going to be a very short one because there's not a lot of information on it. I'm just going to pull the picture up because it's too bright and I'm, it's a lot of attention on me. The Valley. Dirt. Uh, <laughs> ever heard of it? It's here. <laughs> I found this tale in the Best Lomax Hawes collection, which is at CSUN in Special Collections. Best was an anthropology professor at the San Fernando Valley State College, which is now CSUN. Her classes covered folklore, folk music, and ethnomusicology, and later she became the head of anthropology, the anthropology department. The collection consists of folklore data collected between 1958 and 1977 by her students, and some some of these stories are local, some are like national, but I was looking for local tales. The San Fernando Valley has many local tales that involve the mission and the Camarillo State Mental Institution, but they're merely settings for already established campfire stories of like the, hook, the guy with the hook in the hand and the guy's hitting swinging above the car and the girlfriend's screaming. I'm um, very scared. Please stop. <laughs> I need to run away. But there is one story that popped up a couple times I was very curious about. There's not a lot out there. It was a story that circulated around Canoga Park. Transcriptions come from 1962 or maybe a little earlier than that. Does anybody know about something called Mother's Grave? Really? Ooh. I'm, I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> I'm talking to you later. The transcripts talked about a lover's lane area up in the Mulholland Highway. And it came, this, what I read came with directions. You take Canoga Avenue to the very top of Woodland Hills and then it, where it meets Mulholland Drive. There, you see a dirt road and you follow it until you get to a driveway with a gate. That's trespassing. <laughs> then you follow the driveway up to a steep hill until you come to another gate. Two trespassing counts. <laughs> then there's a farmhouse on the left and brushes and trees that surround the area to the right, I believe. Once up there, you will come across a stone, domed tombstone with a marking Mother's Grave. I hear some of the stories that I've heard about it. The backstory apparently is that in the 30s, there was an old woman who died leaving behind her mentally challenged son. Her son was dependent on her, so after she passed, he sat next to her grave and mourned her death until he eventually died of starvation, uh, waiting, just waiting for his mother. Uh, it's said that the son sits at the mother's grave with an axe to protect it from intruders, and since it, he's already dead, he can't be killed. Uh, if you're dumb enough to stumble upon it, then the son will hunt you down and cut your head off. Did that happen to you too? <laughs> 
If you think this sounds a little bit like Friday the 13th, this story was taken 20 years before that movie came out, so it's a little older than that. Um, in some stories, friends talk about being chased away by a man with a rifle. People talk about being hearing weird noises. There are stories about three giant black dogs that protect the grave. There's another version of the story that involves dogs. About uh, There's a hunter who was famous for his dogs. Sounds like the dogs were famous and you just drove them around, but whatever. <laughs> One day the owner died, and instead of embalming the man, they simply buried him on top of Mulholland Highway. So in this story, it's not mother's grave, it's master's grave. Oh. Four days after they buried him, the hound dog sat by his grave and howled night and day. Is it, this another Elvis story? Yeah, out of the grave, Elvis Presley. <laughs> Here he is. And he wants his residuals for whatever. Four days pass after the man dies, after they bury him, and the dogs keep going back to that spot where he was buried, and they howl night and day, night and day. They're howling. Everyone in the area gets really fed up, so they think that something's wrong, so they dig up the grave, and the man's hair has grown long, and the casket they buried him has claw marks, so they buried him alive, and the dogs knew about it. If only dogs could talk. In some other stories, people are chased away by albino men with hatchets. Uh, in some stories, the dogs are albinos, and in other stories, there are albino caves where the albino people live atop Mulholland the cave Highway. The itself is albino, or the people in the cave? I think the people are albino. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I have to go back. To, I gotta go back to see something. I'm glad you took that question seriously. <laughs> Some stories claim that the tombstone moves every time people go see it. It's in a different space. You and I went there after we toured here on Sunday, yeah. and uh, we went up to Lover's Lane during the day. <laughs> it's the only way to experience it. <laughs> we didn't really see much. Uh, today I went back up there. I was kind of driving around. There's a lot of... What are, what are the... Is it buzzards when someone dies and you hear... <laughs> that's, I heard that everywhere I went, and then I buzzards ran away. Buzzards don't buzz. They don't? They're called buzzards. They don't they buzz. They don't buzz. What buzz? Okay, it just flies then. Yeah, they're big flies. Those aren't buzzards? Buzzards go caw-caw. Buzzards are birds. Yeah, buzzards are birds. Then what are the big flies that when people cicadas? die? Cicadas? Are they called cicadas? It might be June bugs, maybe. Watch out for June They bugs might have been escaped dead. monkeys. In my <laughs> they, they've grown they into adult monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's it for Mother's Grave. I'm going to talk to you ladies after. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, for the, our final story, we're going to... It's also a little bit of a scary one. We're going to take it close to home. The... Andres Pico Adobe. Where's that? Yeah. <laughs> if you go up Sepulveda, you'll have trouble finding it. Uh, so now it's just a little bit of a scary story about where we are right now, not by the people who run this place, but me. <laughs> the least qualified person. So if I get something wrong, again, I'll just claim my door prize and I'll be on my way. <laughs> You won't have to show me the door. You're not getting it. <laughs> Just for a little background on where we're sitting, we're in the courtyard of... Uh, this is a courtyard. It's the Thanks. second oldest home in Los Angeles. It was built in 1834 by the natives that were put to work at the San Fernando Mission right nearby here. Originally, it was one story and about 45 feet long. I'm so nervous I'm going to get one detail wrong and Jason's <laughs> going to pull me off stage. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was used for storage or like a guest house for the mission at first. In 1845, though, the entire valley was leased to Andres Pico, the brother of Pio Pico, the last Mexican governor of Alta, California, who is that person. That's not Pio Pico, that's Andres Pico. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Andres never lived at the adobe, and he still uh, instead he stayed in the longhouse at the mission. So Andres signed a nine-year lease on this land, only for the Mexican-American War to break out a year later, and Pio took out a loan against a Spaniard named Eulogio de Celis for $14,000 to help win the war against the United States, and he said that if they didn't repay him in eight months, de Celis would get the valley. You might not be familiar with how that war went, 
But in eight months, DeSellis found himself the proud new owner of 116,858 acres of land. You can build a great Graceland with that, I'm telling you. In 1854, Andres bought back half the valley from DeSellis for 15,000. You know, he made a nice profit. And in 1874, he gave the adobe to his adopted son, Romulo, and his wife, Caterina. I got that up. Or Catalina, as we may now know it. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> Those are them right there. You guess which one's which. <laughs> The dining room and library had been added on before Romulo came in, but then he took it a step further and put in wood floors, built a second story, the kitchen and two wings with a side of breadsticks and a liter of Pepsi <laughs> for $9.99. The bandit Tiburcio Vasquez spent a night here during uh, his... Uh, during, around Rain his terror, <laughs> during his rampage. There's some of his stuff still inside, which is pretty cool. The Pico family abandoned this place for good in the late 1800s, where it stood vacant for many years and fell into decay. There were rumors that there was treasure hidden in these thick adobe walls, and that there was a secret tunnel connecting here to the mission. So people came and dug up all the dirt and started pounding into the walls. They were rewarded for their vandalism by finding dirt and maybe some straw if they were lucky. In 1927, an archeologist and curator of the Southwest Museum, Dr. Mark Harrington, moved in with his wife, Endica. They restored the adobe using bricks made from the, so the surrounding soil, so it's mostly authentic. Added a north wing, a garage, the fireplace in the living room. They also planted some lemon trees out front that were used by the Sunkiss Packing House. They used to be across the street. In 1945, the Harringtons moved out and the house was ch it changed hands some more until 1957. It was bought by the North Valley Y YMCA, who used it as their office until 1965 when it went up for sale yet again, and the San Fernando Valley Historical Society tries to raise money to buy it, but they couldn't, and I'm very disappointed in you. And it was looking like it was going to be destroyed until the city stepped in and bought it, and it has since been watched over by the Historical Society, and in 1966 was put on the National Register of Historic Places. Now the scary stuff. When this place was in one of its many states of decay, kids would play in the rubble, and there were reports of hearing moans coming from the location of the present south bedroom on the second floor, which I think is those dark, scary windows up there. Right, Jason? <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Uh, while Harrington lived there, drawers of Pico's desk would open up on their own, and a guitar could be heard playing in the living room at night. He didn't play the guitar. <laughs> he played accordion. Uh, they, they would also hear the clicking of heels dancing to Spanish rhythms in the living room, oh, and then they'd dance up the hallway, up the stairs, I mean, to their bedroom door, and then he'd open it, and they'd stop. This sounds like the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> the, the ballroom dancing. Yeah. And then the ride broke down. And <laughs> Uh, underneath the stairs, they'd hear the sound of someone sewing late at night, which is the scariest one to me. Yeah. Not this one. <laughs> one time he took a picture of his wife against the southeast wall, and in the picture when it was developed was a woman dressed in a mantilla and a little girl standing next to her. Oh, I don't like yeah. that. He held a seance to see what was going on, and they said it was just Katerina thanking them for restoring their home, but a simple note in blood on the mirror would have done. <laughs> that would have been great. Uh, and Jason, do you want to come tell a few of your tales of hauntings working here? Just so you all know, Daniel's going to be a docent here. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing was my interview. Yes. And you passed, by the way. Yes. We're very glad to have you. <laughs> so what have you experienced that wasn't what I just said? I, kn I know you, you told me something very scary. You told me a lot of things I didn't know. I would think you were making it up, actually. Um, no, those, no, that's real. I, I'm kidding. We've had a lot of stories here. If you've been around long enough, you know there's a taboo about don't talk about the ghosts and because we want you to know the real history about it. 
But honestly, there's a lot of ghost stories. <laughs> if you talk to the right person, they will tell you. I've heard things happen here from the board members. They've, um, they thought they saw a shadow. Who told me that story? Hannah? They saw a shadow of somebody walking. Several people saw it through the window and nobody was in there. And Midge has a story. This happened recently. There was a uh, gentleman upstairs doing research, literally like last month, and in the research room. And he asked Midge, who was that girl upstairs? Who was that girl upstairs? And she said, I'm sorry, there's no girl here. We didn't have any visitors. And he said he saw a girl up in the costume room. So that was where he had never been here before. So that's, I'm, I'm really skeptical. You know, I'm not saying we've had paranormal um, investigations here. We've had EVP sessions and nothing happened. Telemundo was here. They did something last Halloween. But these are the kind of things that happen that make me go, what? You know? And another thing, this is recently. What is that? What? Oh, the birds at night. Oh, I'm no. sorry, I, the birds at night. Okay, this is weird. Did anybody hear our podcast, the Brainwaves podcast, The Paranormal? It was a live show. They were here for three hours, and it was like almost a midnight, and these birds were like just singing, and it, we were all creeped out because we're all out here in the courtyard. Like, what are these birds going off? So they know. It's like on cue. They love podcasts. They, they want podcasts. Yeah. So you start talking about scary stories, and they all... Their ears perk up. So we had the grand president of, help me out, the native daughters of the Golden West. Thank you, yes. And she was here, and we were giving a tour, and our docent Jerry and our docent Midge was in the living room, and we have an old Edison phonograph. Most of you have seen it, you know, with the big horn. I had my back to it, and nobody was near it, you know, and I hear the sound of something cranking, you know, you just turning. Like, now, what's that? What? That's a fire engine. Oh. <laughs> Are the birds doing that? They make they make wheelie noises. Is that one of Greg's make, No, it's the air raid siren. Nobody get down. Sorry, where's the oh, door prize? No, I just got paranoid for a minute there. He wins the door prize, by the way. Yes. Anyways, we turned around and the phonograph turned on by itself. It was running. Now the needle didn't come down, but the cylinder turned on. Now there's only two ways to turn that thing on. You could crank it, or you can just flip the switch. And Jerry, Jerry went and turned it off. He said it's totally true, and Jerry wouldn't lie. Jerry approved. Jerry would not lie. And then I told Jerry about it, and then he blamed it on Duke. Duke Perrin from the Chatsworth Historical Society. Because, you know, Duke likes to play tricks on us like that. Because they're from Chatsworth, so. No, no, but this really happened. And so these are the kind of things that make you go, what? And I'm sure some of you have other stories. Yeah. But I will say that Elva Maline, how many of you remember Elva Maline? Nobody? One person. Two people. Okay. Elva Maline was our living caretaker. She lived here before, think, yeah. the, before the Northridge earthquake because then half of the wall fell down and that would scared her. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Why would she be scared of that? Yeah, right? Katarina didn't scare her, but the yeah. wall falling down, that was pretty. No, when she first moved in, she would hear noises and she thought that it was Katarina or Catalina, who we know, but that's a different story. She told her, I'm here now, I'm living here and just get used to it. You know, sure. so she acknowledged, That's and this was in the Daily News, by the way. So I thought that was like interesting that even Elva thought, you know. So and uh, Dr. Doyle said the ghosts went with Elva, so I don't know, but maybe they, they came back. Apparently, so they love music these days. I hear yes, <laughs> old music, and old. they love bad podcasts too. <laughs> well, I'm no, leaving. I'm kidding. No. I'm leaving hey, right oh, now. Only they can get jokes about their show. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love these guys. They're awesome. Nobody's more excited. I broke his cup today. That's how excited I was. Yeah, that's how he greeted me. He threw my water bottle on the ground and said, I'm just you're gonna, a dork. Can we just give him the door prize? I think we owe him at this point. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for being so here. Much. I appreciate it. Uh, Greg, get on back. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I tried to listen to the Telemundo interview. 
I didn't realize, I don't know what I was thinking watching Telemundo. It's all in Spanish. And then Jason comes out. Yeah, and, and he starts speaking English. And then they dub him in Spanish. <laughs> okay, so that's our show. Uh, thank you, everybody, yeah. for being here. This was fun. Yeah, thank you to the San Fernando Valley Historical Society. Thanks to the Adobe in, as a, in, in general. Thanks, Jason Vega, for helping set this up and for Maria. just coming here and insulting us. <laughs> Maria, thank you so much for helping us with research and giving us that tour. Yeah, thank you for sitting in the cold for us. Yes, we really that, appreciate it. That has been another episode of LA Meekly, the podcast, Outweirding Portland since 2013. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Thank you.